It's a Show with Greg Shannon is presented by the Jackpot Casino and OpenHighway.com. Check out our Facebook, check out our Twitter, and make sure that you like and share, especially on Facebook, because it's becoming even more problematic for us to gain traction on Facebook. Facebook changes uh, their algorithms just like we change our underwear that we get from twigandberries.ca. From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race. And I find them highly illogical. It's a Show is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Highly illogical. Got my pal Ken Adams from the Sloan Baxter Agency in Toronto on the line, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about. You've been heavily involved in this It's a Show podcast project from the start. We've got big grandmaster plans to take over the universe. Just a fair warning to all of our podcast competition. Look out, we're coming. Slowly but surely, but that's how you beat the hare with the tortoise. How are you, Ken? I'm, uh, I'm doing great. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to have me on the show. Uh, I want to say I appreciate you giving me a hot tip on a Hager suit sale today at the Bay because I went in there on your recommend and I've been there before and I was a little reluctant and I told you, ah, th- this is for skinny people only. And lo and behold, a beautiful lady helped me find an entire suit ensemble and the grand total, $104. If I had the bell, I'd ring it. <laughs> it's unreal. That was I'm very happy with the purchase. Well, I'll tell you, Greg, uh, when I saw that offer in the flyer from the Bay, and I like going, I'm a flyer guy. You know, I like. So you're the guy. The you're the guy who wants yeah. paper delivered to your door. Yeah, exactly. I'm the one that has to sign, please leave paper flyers here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this suit is a Hager suit. That was the sale. And so I just thought yeah. I'd look them up just for kicks on Wikipedia. Everybody's got a story, and this company is no different. The Hager Clothing Company, founded in 1926 by a Lebanese immigrant named Joseph Marion Hager in a one-room office in the Santa Fe building in Dallas, Texas. He kind of employed the Henry Ford model after a while and did it as a factory, like boom, 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 down the line. And the quality was still there because he was so adamant that the quality be paramount in this operation that he oversaw that personally. By 1971, Hager was the number one pan brand in the country of America, not our country, but you know, there's some spillover. In the 50s, he had the prototype for wrinkle-free pants and officially introduced it in the 1990s. The first time they showed it off was on Good Morning America in the 50s or something like that. And they were the very first company to advertise pants on TV. I don't know why I'm fascinated by that, but that's actually a pretty fascinating statistic. Well, well look at this. Hager and professional sports. Major League Baseball players who have uh, endorsed this product include Roger Maris, Phil Rizzuto. In the Simpsons episode, The Last Temptation of Crust, Krusty the Clown makes reference to stealing a pair of Hager slacks, immortalized for all time in The Simpsons. In 1971, a young John Travolta appeared in a national television commercial for Hager slacks. Boys, I'm really with it for getting you those Hager slacks, ain't I, for only $13, too. Yes, ma'am. Stand up, Ronnie, and you groove on those navy bottoms, don't you? Flare bottoms, Grant. Don't hassle me. Uh, And these wide belt loops are left on. No, no, right on. Right on. Hager, the slacks people. We make everybody look good. And 
This is the good one. Where is it now? Uh... Hager Clothing Company today holds the number one market position in men's dress pants in the United States, as well as the number two share in men's casual pants. They're all about the pants, but the jacket looks pretty cool too. They're all about the separates. You know, it's mix and match. So you can kind of mix with the match and come up with uh, the ideal outfit depending on your mood or your sense of style. I think I understand um, what you're saying. Hager is the official provider of the gold jacket to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Shrinee since 1978. The official clothing partner and provider of the Hockey Hall of Fame jacket. Did you know that? Uh, actually, I did because I've actually gone. To, I didn't. I didn't know that, but I know it now that you bring it up because they sponsor. Hager is one of the sponsors of the big Hockey Hall of Fame alumni game that they have that weekend in Toronto. Big to-do where they have a lot of the older veterans come in and, they, and Hager sponsors that. So yeah, I knew that. So bottom line, Hager makes a pretty fine looking suit. I'm a, you know, a slightly lumpy, little bit wrinkled, disheveled, late 40s gentleman, and it makes me look good. So I'm happy. Thank you. It brings a sense of pride to me. You've been hounding me for weeks about... Free money, baby. It's, uh, it's about an opportunity that I kind of stumbled upon that I thought, you know, this might be interesting to share with our audience because everybody wins. By the way, you're listening to the It's a Show podcast, proudly brought to you by OpenHighway.com. That's OpenHWY.com and the world-famous Jackpot Casino in gorgeous downtown Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. The operations manager, Adam, was cutting a rug last night at the PBR event that I attended. There was a little uh, shindig dance afterwards at the Danes Ranch Rodeo grounds nine second ride was playing and doing a bunch of cover tunes and adam was well the best way i can describe it to you ken is jed clampett remember how he used to dance on beverly hillbillies <laughs> pretty right on i'd be lying if i said i didn't so i guess i should be honest <laughs> so anyway adam was having a ball with his beautiful girl des and uh the place was thick with danes as usual they were everywhere it didn't matter which way you franklin the owner-proprietor of the world-famous Jackpot Casino actually bought me and my beautiful wife, Teresa, a complimentary cocktail, as did his brother, Ivan Danes. Okay, moving uh, on. But talking about our sponsors, actually, I wanted to i wanted to mention, since you brought it up, I, I just noticed today when I was... Are we going to get to the free money soon? Yeah, just quickly, I just wanted to do a special shout-out to Open Highway. I was on the Twitter machine today, and I noticed that the local um, Bernard Calibo lady in Red Deer... BJ. At Coco Lady, I believe, underscore, or just at Coco Lady. They just installed a new Open Highway uh, social media engagement machine factory magic box thing in the uh, <laughs> in the location, uh, which I was really excited. So I actually shared that, and everybody loved it. And Yeah, he's getting around. Yeah, it's great. That's awesome. Every time I see that, I love to be able to share it because it's kind of like life imitating art in a sense anyway let's get back to the money okay so you've been hounding me for weeks about this uh what is it called the uh, the tambourine bank no actually it's called the, the tambourine bank is another one it's for um <clears throat> musicians but this one is called the tangerine bank like the orange but not the orange it's the tangerine orange and is the new tangerine and we're going to be in the black if we use it Exactly. Okay. Tangerine is the tangerine is the new orange and just like the tangerine is not like a regular orange, tangerine is not like a regular bank. I'm going to stop you there for a second because I did some research if I'm not mistaken, Scotia Bank is the parent company of the tangerines. Yes. They, uh, they took over Tangerine in 2012, and they bought it from the ING Grow Up, G-R-O-E-P. Grow Up? I don't know you. <laughs> Grow Up. Yeah, it's a Dutch company. ING is actually one of the largest financial institution companies in the world, and uh, it's the ING Grow Up, G-R-O-E-P. So I don't know how you pronounce that. 
I guess you have to be Dutch to pronounce it correctly. But uh, they started ING Direct in Canada in 1997. And I was actually one of the original, not one of the original, but an original customer. And so I've, I've known them a long time. Yeah. And Scotia Bank bought them in 2012, which is kind of cool. Now, tell me how I get my free money because I am so excited about the interview this week with Authorized on It's a Show podcast. We've got Paul Derry. He wrote the new book, Inside a Police Informant's Mind, and it's going to freak your freak out. This guy, 30 years, a police informant and witnessed murder, put away relatives with his testimony, Hell's Angels. It's a crazy story. We chose the lifestyle we're in, we all did, but those children didn't choose the lifestyle. They didn't choose for their father to be a part of that world. Uh, and when you told me that you were interviewing him and you told me all of this stuff that he was up to, I was uh, kind of freaking out and I was worried for your safety because uh, me too. You never know. <laughs> you never know what might happen. But anyway, Tangerine is totally owned by Scotia Bank of Canada, which is one of the part of the you know the big five banks in Canada, which means it's solid. The other thing about it is it's an online bank only in the sense that they have no branches except for a couple of cafes they call them, where you can go in and shoot the breeze. I believe there's in Toronto, Calgary, and the bigger centers in. Canada. Canada, but you don't really need those because you can do all your banking online. But one of the great things about this is the fact that you can access your cash. No service fees, Greg. Seriously, there's no service fees involved using Tangerine Bank for day-to-day things. I mean, there's you know little service fees if you're doing an AVM, uh, sorry, an Interact email, whatever. It doesn't matter. If you want to take money out of your bank account, out of your checking account, no fee as long as you use it as a Scotiabank, uh, ABM. If you want to pay your bills online, there's no fee. There's no monthly banking fees. I was actually calculating that before I started using Tangerine Bank all the time, I was paying like $13 a month at one of the big five banks. That's $156 a year year. Yikes. And when you stop and think about it, you know, depending on where you're living in Canada, that's a car insurance payment, right? That's a mobile phone, internet, and cable television bill. If you make $15 an hour, that's 10 hours of your life that you're giving up every year just to get access to your money at a bank. So when you think about it, I'm offering you freedom. <laughs> okay, so how does it work? How do we sign up? Because you said if I sign up uh, with your key code that you give me, I have to deposit $100 to start the account and then I'll get a free 50 and you'll get a free 50. Exactly. So that's wow. that, that's the benefit of it. Everybody sort of wins. It's it's a basically a referral program. Our audience wants to take advantage of this. No. Just to clarify, our audience has to be in Canada because Tangerine only offers this service to people in Canada. The easiest way for people to find out more about this and to get the ball rolling is by dropping us an email. In the subject matter, just put Tangerine Referral, please. That's pretty simple, is it not? But the email they should send it to is it's a show podcast at gmail.com. It's a show podcast at gmail.com and put Tangerine referral program in the subject line. Exactly. And then once they do that, we'll know that they're interested in finding out how they can do this. And like you said, this offer is actually good up until September 16th of this year. There's two things that are involved. We send you our orange key, which is basically a referral code that lets them know that we're referring you to the bank. And when you deposit $100 and open an account, this is for new customers only too, by the way, you deposit your $100. There is a time factor involved. So you have to leave that money in the account. Even if you want to close your account after that and just take your $50, that's fine. But the fact of the matter is you're going to be saving so much money in your everyday banking fees that I don't know why you would want to switch back to your regular checking or at least use this is your main checking account because of all the the savings that you incur. So everybody wins. You've been doing this for how long? 
Uh, I, like I said, I've been with ING Direct, uh, the precursor to Tangerine, since it first opened in 1997. So that's over 21 years. And he's a cheap guy, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't like to spend money. So this is good. Uh, frugal. F-R-O-O-G-U-L-L. Fact of the matter is, is what we're going to do with our referral, $50, if you sign up, we're going to put it into the It's a Show pot and buy some much-needed equipment and some advertising and try and grow the show. Exactly. As always, some valuable information. I got a hot tip on a suit for $100, and now I got a way to make $50 just like that by starting an account and helping It's a Show at the same time. This has uh, been the most value you've ever brought to my life, and I've known you for 50 years or however long we've known each other. Something like that, yes. Something um, like that. That was Ken Adams, the executive producer of It's a Show, and he joined us live from Toronto with a lot of hot tips. So don't forget, Tangerine Bank, all you got to do is email us at itsashowpod at gmail.com and put Tangerine Bank Referral Program in the subject line, and we'll figure out the rest for you right from there. It's easy peasy lemon squeezy, and we're going to all get rich. Although I think the email address is actually itsashowpodcast at gmail.com. As I was saying. <laughs> Get out of here. I got a special guest on. This is authorized on It's a Show podcast with our special guest, author Paul Derry. And we're going to talk about his brand new book, Inside a Police Informant's Mind. It's getting difficult. Everybody wants to make a movie, but finding somebody with quality is the hard part. I'm Greg Shannon. Welcome to Authorized, where we delve into the makeup of published authors and get a sneak preview of their new offerings. My guest is author, speaker, consultant, and former police informant for a brief 17-year and three-month period, Paul Derry. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Greg. How are you? Let's just get it out of the way off the top. Is it true that the Hells Angels have a contract on your life? Uh, that is very true, yes. After looking at your social media, I don't think that you're that concerned about it because you're taking those guys out at every turn. You're saying something that might be considered derogatory if I was a Hells Angel. Well, I, I mean, I think I speak truth, so it, and it probably is quite derogatory to them in their minds. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't believe that the few should control the many. So if I could wear a wire into the Hells Angels clubhouse uh, to help take them down, I'm not going to feel too bad about having to sit at the distance and uh, share truth about them. How did you get into that line of work? Uh, the very first time two uh, police officers approached me, I was uh, probably 15, just turning 16, just living in a small town in Nova Scotia, and uh, I was selling some pot. They came up and asked me if I would tell them where my dealer's stash was, and they would give me $20. So I took the $20, and I ran as quick as I could to his house and told him to hide his stash. And later on in life, I, I thought... Looking back, that looked like it would be a good career if I did it the right way, though. So then you approached the cops, or they approached you again on a different issue? Well, you know, I d delved into crime a little bit more and uh, ended up doing a year in jail, I guess, when I was 17. When I got out on parole, one of the first requirements was to meet uh, the police and report weekly. And uh, the next police officer I met was that one and he uh, asked me for information and uh, I started working with him for a little while. That was a brief stint. Wasn't very happy with him. Wasn't paying very well and I ended up uh, turning to the RCMP once I got arrested by uh, an officer. Rough childhood? Did you come from a broken home or how did you get into crime as a kid? No, I was. Uh, I actually grew up on a military base. Great family. Father uh, was in the military all his life. Both brothers joined the military. Uh, I had a great childhood. Great parents. 
great family, uh, just rebellious. Uh, you know, it came from reading a lot of books, actually. One of the reasons I try not to glorify crime in the books that I write is because that's, I believe, what kind of led down, led me down that road. I used to read crime books on the mafia and organized crime, you know, and I aspired to be like them. And then one day, one day I ended up doing a seven-year sentence and uh, walked in through the, the doors of Dorchester and thought, wow, I aspired to be this. And that was the end. That was the epiphany. Yeah. yeah. Then I realized just what exactly I had come to. So if anybody's just tuning in, our conversation is with Paul Derry. He's the author of two books. The first one, Treacherous, How the RCMP Allowed a Hell's Angel to Kill, and the second book, Inside a Police Informant's Mind. Now, this book is just being launched, the second book. I kind of surmise I know what it's about from the title, but is this real down and dirty and gritty and this is not an all-ages book for one of my kids to read, I, I imagine? Not only is it not for kids, I would suggest. I kind of had it in mind that it would be a manual. My first book really ripped a strip off the RCMP for what I felt went wrong in uh, in an operation in 2000 that caused Sean Simmons to get killed. The second book really is about the relationship between informants, agents, and their handlers, and just how manipulative we are as informants, and kind of gave a second look to what I wrote in Treacherous saying, well, I kind of understand some of the decisions they made. This is how manipulative we are. And this is what they have to try to control and mitigate as they uh, make deals with the devil, so, so to speak. In your mind and with your experience, do you think the RCMP and the agents that they've got in these positions are up to the challenge? Because you're skilled at the art of deception and lying, and their mission is to filter out what's the truth and what's bullshit. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, they're definitely a lot better than they used to be. Um, you know, my case in, in specific, it helped change a lot of things. And I think the RCMP have taken great uh, gone to great lengths to uh, make the changes needed. It's a human factor, though, right? I mean, and it's always about relationship. And in every relationship, there's a give and take and there's dysfunction and there's, you know, they have to stay so true to their character and integrity and we have no rules to play by. I mean, that's the beauty of being an informant, I guess, is we have no rules. They have all the rules. So that puts a lot, a lot of stress and, and pressure on them to get it right. But, you know, when you're a guy that's, you know, now come to the, the light side from the dark side, you've got that on your conscience now. You do have rules because now you're trying to play for the good guys more than the bad guys. So that must have caused you a lot of stress. Just just coming into a pro-social life from an anti-social life caused me a great deal of stress, yes. And, and coming in with a family and coming in with uh, – the contract on my head and you're learning life over again to go from making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to making very little in comparison. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. So, Do you see a therapist regularly or a counselor of any type to, to adjust to normal life? No, I, I was lucky to, you know, I actually just picked up a Bible in a room in 2000 and started reading it and, uh, you know, my life was transformed through that. I mean, I don't often share that part, but yeah, I mean, I, I really have had a, a great faith and a great uh, understanding of, and it's what I what helped me write this book, because how else would I understand moral character? How, how else would I understand a moral compass or, or even the characteristics needed to be so, so pro-social, other than the, you know, brief years that I was at home from zero to 15 type thing. I imagine you were estranged from your parents during the time that you were a criminal, correct? Or uh, or did we, they know? They we, didn't know. No, they knew. Um, they knew because I was in and out of prison. Right. Yeah, so, here's a clue. Yeah. <laughs> I 
hard to stay away from family reunions for seven years at a time. Right. Um, you can't make up excuses why you got to make collect calls to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I mean, you know what, they went through hell and, uh, you know, I, you know, my mother's recognized the change. My father passed away while I was in prison. So he didn't get to see any of the mess that happened post to, you know, 2000 and on. So I don't know if that's a blessing or, you know, not. The good news is if you're a Christian, you're going to get to talk to him about it when you get up there. So we sure hope so. Yeah. We sure hope we're in the same, we sure hope we're in the same place one way or another. <laughs> yeah, the same. Guess c- we'll all find out in the end. The same cell block. Are we in the same deal? <laughs> I read somewhere just on one of the articles that, yeah, you're not so afraid of the fact that there's a contract on your head. What you are afraid of is that things might turn bad in front of your own children. Yeah, that would be my only concern. I, I don't want to be shot anywhere near my family. I would not want to have to see it. I mean, obviously, I would like to be around as long as I can for my children. I have very young children, and I have a few of them. So, so the longer I'm around, the better. I would like to impart as much of my uh, wisdom and knowledge as I can. One of the reasons I'm writing the books is so they understand the truth of what happened, and maybe they'll garner some, some kind of wisdom out of it all, too. You bared your soul in these books, and you, I mean, you weren't always a prince. Did you tell that side of the story too? I don't think there's anybody who will think that I lied in them. I, I'm very honest and, and in, I'm very introspective about myself. I'm very honest about my part and everything. If uh, And, and there's, you know, there's more to come. I still plan on writing books about uh, uh, some other issues in, in life yet. But no, I'm, I'm pretty introspective. Nobody is going to learn anything from me if I'm just uh, telling stories. And, and like I said at the beginning, I... I don't want books that glorify that world. I want them truthful about that world, but I certainly don't want them to glorify them because that is what led me down that road. You were saying at one point you're making a couple of hundred grand a month. Uh, I think in the end we were selling probably yeah, two to three keys of cocaine a month. Man. I had a partner at the time, uh, so no, but on average we were, we were uh, getting three keys. He'd usually take two and I'd take one, but uh, that's just because he had more customers and, you know, so the profits of that a key of cocaine at that time cost around 48 to 52,000 we made pretty good money so what did you do with the money were you you know flying off to florida and partying or or what were you doing uh you know what it just all went with the lifestyle I, quite surprising that you can spend money the, between breakfast lunch supper hotels women and then the, just the cost of doing business it goes it goes you know cars you don't get to spend it. I mean, I'm, I guess, you know, there, there's some people that were smarter than I was. I, I certainly wasn't smart enough to take my money and put it into anything legitimate. So mine was really on the party. Many of us aspire to write a book in our lives. You've written two. Yeah. Was it a, a labor or did it just kind of spill out of you from your personal experience? Was it hard to put it together? Once it was in my head, I, I think it flowed out fairly easily. It was getting it sorted in my head once once i was ready to write i was ready to write it was getting it sorted in my head what i wanted to write about getting the theme and what the purpose was of it once i had all that figured out i just started at the beginning and went it kind of took on a life of its own as i went and how long of a time period was it shorter to write the first book or longer and the first book took longer. The, the second book really it took me maybe three months the first one probably took me eight months but you would think I only did a, took a month on the first one. I actually like the second one better, but well, that's just my personal opinion. I've had lots of opinions both ways, but yeah. Well, and that first one, you're wrestling with a horrific incident where a guy is murdered, and you're driving the getaway car. So 
probably something that rolls around in a guy's brain and is difficult to deal with even after you spill it out on paper. It never leaves me. It yeah. hasn't left me since the day it happened. It, 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 it's there every single morning, every every single night. I think about the man's children. I think about him. I see his face. I think about his sister, his mother, his wife. I think about them all. Well, you know, with a whole family steeped in military, you'd think that you would, like, that's PTSD, and you really should see a guy or a girl. Well, there's there's quite a few incidences, I'm guessing, that probably would warrant it. I, I, I wouldn't say you were wrong in that. I, I don't know much about PTSD other than those that have been over overseas. And some, I think many police officers... Uh, need the help first, that's for sure. They see much more than I do on a day's. Do you see that as a career that you would recommend for someone you know and love to get into? Uh, I've suggested it to my son, but I, I suggested it with the knowledge mm-hmm. and sharing with him what exactly it takes to be a police officer. I would suggest that somebody would have to be very realistic about the things they are going to see. I mean, not just in the crime world, uh, you know, just in basic everyday life of a police officer. I mean, going to the car wrecks and dealing with families and, you know, all the other things. There's a lot of horrific things that go on in, in policing. Hanging around with police officers all my life, obviously, I've, I've got to hear many, many, many stories and meet many, many people. And, uh, and then, of course, since becoming a Christian, I've actually got to uh, spend lots of time with friends that are police officers still. It's a great career if that's something you are prepared to go into. I, w- I wouldn't do it for the money. That's, I guess, what I would say. I mean, it would be a, a joint decision between you and your spouse as well, if you have one, because, I mean, that's they're getting into it along with you. Absolutely. I mean, and, and it's no different with, with me now with, with the things that I do. I didn't write either book or, or the, do the documentary for Outlaw Bikers or uh, do any radio interviews without discussing it with my wife and with my, my older children and, you know, how it'll affect them and do they mind and do they have any reservations. I don't know where you're based, and I don't want to know because you're in the witness protection. <laughs> but I'm based in Red Deer, and this is reputed to be a hotbed or used to be for Hell's Angels. What do you know about that? Well, I mean, is there a community that isn't touched by them? I mean, obviously they had, I uh, can't even remember the club's name now. What were they before Hell's Angels out there in Calgary? That's back when Ralph Klein was hanging out and sharing a beer with them. <laughs> um <laughs> oh God! You know what? Every community is affected by them. They're in every single community, and if they're not, their puppet clubs or their wannabes are, and they're spreading meth and and flooding our streets with drugs. And you know, it's unfortunate. I don't know if it's more because society is apathetic or just ignorant. It baffles me some days when I turn on the news and we're worried about some of the things we're worried about. When we have kids and, and adults even dying all around us from their drugs that are flooding the streets constantly. Boggles my mind. So, for example, my son attends a major high school. There's 2,000 students in there. Are they recruiting at the high school level and say, hey, kid, you want to make some extra money? It's an offer you can't refuse because we're going to pound you if you don't do it. Or How do they distribute the drugs and are people coming to look for them? Or are they got to plant the seeds and get these guys at the high school level? Or how does it work? Well, certainly the Hells Angels aren't... aren't, aren't uh out of school pedaling. I mean, they're they're not even riding bikes for the most part. Most of them are driving Lexuses, wearing business suits, and and uh, doing business with people every day that you know don't even realize who they are. Paul, that's what's um, wrong with this world, man. There's no more white hat and black hat. Every ever since the world became gray for me, that's when my stress started. <laughs> like you know, if you're a biker, you if you're a biker, put on that leather vest and intimidate me next to my car on your bike. <laughs> 
That's what I expect you to do, you dumbass. Yeah. Well, I mean, you go look at Mumbu Shard. I mean, here he is, someone that's had two uh, correctional officers killed. He's ordered murders from prison. He's a punk. And wh- what did he do? He played in the symphony in the orchestra in Montreal. Do you think the guys in the orchestra all knew that he was uh, out killing people or having people killed? You know, when I got to the top of the Hells Angels, I haven't met too many of them that look like your typical biker. You know, society is is gets to see the typical biker are the puppet club. And, you know, the people that run around and do their dirty work under those puppet clubs are all the wannabes that are trying to impress them. And, you know, eventually at the bottom of that pyramid scheme, you've got the guys that are at the high schools. But either way, those drugs start at the top. When we get those keys of cocaine, they were packaged ready for the water when we opened them up in Halifax at the port, coming right out of the ports. And I can guarantee you all that by the time we, we cut it, we cut those drugs in half right then and there. And it goes all the way down to the streets where the where the drugs are probably at six to fifteen percent. They weren't sixteen six to fifteen percent when we started at the top. So that's all the levels that went down. Right. So are you cutting them? What do you cut it with? Like what is it? It depends. I mean, I you know I've been out of that for a while, but we use a product called Comeback for our cocaine because it would cook back with the cocaine into crack form, which is fairly new back in two thousand. But now they're you know now they're so into the meth. The meth will uh, make you come back every five minutes. You know. So now that this is i mean it's not really behind you it's always a part of you but you've purged your soul of some of this into written form and and to help educate and inform the general public and and peace officers everywhere do you stop and smell the roses and enjoy the little things in life now like you know the world through the eyes of your children and things like that do you pause and are you relaxed enough to be able to do that oh absolutely i you know what i i will not uh, be intimidated. Listen, I'm not, I'm not some superhero that's not scared to face the Hell's Angels, but I'm not going to run in and have my life lived any different. Listen, I go home at the, when I'm not traveling. I go home at the end of the day, and you know, I've got a, a four-year-old and a five-year-old. I've got uh, other kids, different ages, all the way up to thirty. Uh, you know, right now I get to enjoy, I sit and watch cartoons and hang out with my kids and, uh, chill, you know, we make pizza together. We do normal family things. We go to the park. I don't look for them. I, I, you know, when I'm behind my computer I say what I have to say, when I'm on my social networks, I say what I have to say. Uh, when I'm writing, I'm writing about things I'm passionate about, passionate about the Hells Angels being taken away from this country. I don't believe there's any reason for us to have them here. They should not be a legal entity. They're a legal corporation that we allow in this country that's an insane thought how is that even possible it's an insane thought that they're a legal corporation and everything that every biker owns belongs to that corporation so when they get arrested all of that stuff all that property their bikes everything goes back to that corporation all the money they make goes to the corporation and then the corporation has all its nice legal businesses and you know and they have their little support uh, stores with their support 81 and it's all used for crime and and, and to rob kill and destroy and wreck people's lives that's the society that, that's what we allow that's what i said is it apathy or is it ignorance i like to hope that i push people out of their and i push their apathetic asses into the next uh, move of action and if not i hope that i educate them out of their ignorance to at least understand that hey this doesn't have to be we don't have to have the four or five hundred hell's angels roaming these these streets controlling people you know and, and wrecking these lives i doubt there's too many people even down at your kinsman club that haven't been touched in some way in their family by the drugs of the Hells Angels. I think awareness
awareness, obviously, and that's that's your goal. Awareness is half the battle. And now I know I'm not looking for a guy in a leather sleeved thing as being the top guy. I'm a fairly astute guy. I've got a college diploma, two college diplomas, and I work at a college. And you'd think I would know this at 49 years of age, and I'm just figuring it out now. So count me in as one of your ambassadors. That's okay, Greg. I'm 50. I got a grade seven, and uh, I had to find out the hard way. It's okay if you're having to hear it from me. <laughs> wow, man. That's insane how the world works, right? It is really incredible. So I just want to say I can't believe what you've been through and what you survived. And the fact that you chose to take the high road and try and change the world is very admirable. And I wish you nothing but luck in your continued speaker travels. I know you speak for schools and law enforcement agencies all over the place. And I think that's incredible. Yeah. And I hope they pay you what you're worth because, uh, you know, you've got a deficit after making a hundred grand a month doing the drug thing. Well, I got I got to tell you, it sure is different being surrounded by police officers now that are <laughs> sitting there staring at you, waiting to hear what you have to say rather than yeah. telling you to get on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it's a little bit better. This I would be remiss, Paul, if I didn't ask you about Veterans Voices of Canada. I'm on the board and it's a terrific organization yep. and it's nationwide. Our goal is to document the lives of veterans on videotape for history and education purposes. Started by Alan, awesome. Alan Cameron. Uh, from out your way out Nova Scotia way and uh, he has awesome. whole family including a great uncle in World War One. his uncle Pearlie was D-Day at Normandy the whole thing and he missed getting his interview on tape as a global television cameraman that was Al's previous job and he said, you know what, that's it. I'm chucking my day job and I'm going to do this. And 12 years ago that started. And now I'm on the board oh, wow. for the last couple of years. And our fundraising element for Veterans Voices of Canada is called Flags of Remembrance. We're the guys that put the flags up by the highway. It happened. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We started in Sylvan Lake. Last year was five other cities, including all the way to Charlottetown PEI, which was just an incredible event. This year we're going to about 10 cities and we're our goal is to hit 150 cities for Canada's 150th next year. So oh, awesome. speaking of awareness if you can help me out with that cause and help sell some flag sponsorships it's a minimum two hundred dollars and you get a flag and an honor plaque and at the end of it all they're raised on october 1st they stay right through remembrance day and then in each community we have a ceremony the saturday after remembrance day to present the donors with the plaque with their veterans name and their flag well you can be sure you just got a, a new donor i will uh I'll get in touch with you privately and uh, and I'll definitely make it a public cause of mine for sure. To have you on board as an ambassador with all the speaking you do would be incredible for us, that's for sure. Well, coming from a military family, maybe my two brothers will feel a little better about me too. It <laughs> might bridge a large gap. You never know, right? You never know. You can count me on, on, on one flag for sure from myself. I'll uh, put that up for my dad. That sounds awesome and I will get in touch with you and I really appreciate your time today. It was a real eye-opening interview and uh, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. I was nervous and a little bit scared when I started reading the articles and found out what you actually did and what you were through and, and who's after you. And I'm going, geez, I don't know if I want to get my family involved in this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the feeling of most people that meet me. <laughs> no worries there, Greg. <laughs> All right. Two books out there, Treacherous, How the RCMP Allowed a Hell's Angel to Kill, and the second book, Inside a Police Informant's Mind. It's brand new. Where do we get them? Where's the best place to go? Your website? Uh, my website or uh, second book can be found at CRC Press or Taylor and Francis. Either one. They're, one's the American version, one's the Canadian. So you know how you're visiting with your company and you're standing there at the doorway and you're saying your goodbyes and then all of a sudden a couple of beauty stories come out? You've been talking for hours, but you never covered this topic? Well, that's exactly what happened with me and Paul Derry. So join us next time on the It's a Show podcast for some death-defying, spine-tingling stories from the author of Inside a Police Informant's Mind.
he had me out in the woods and he was hitting me in the back of the head with a nine millimeter. I'm Cassie Hotpants Suresh saying thanks for listening to this week's epic episode of It's a Show with Greg Shannon. We're here 24-7, 365 at It's a Show Pod on iTunes and Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Right on.